Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives again and was recorded in November of 2014. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. Anwar Shaikh. Dr. Shaikh draws from his experience of living in cities across the world, including Ankara, Washington, D.C., Lagos, New York, and many more. Mr. Shaikh received his bachelor's from Princeton and earned his Ph.D. from Columbia, both in economics. He is the author of Capitalism, Competition, Conflict, and Crises, and Measuring the Wealth of Nations. He is the author of journals on topics such as macroeconomics, competition, inequality, and much, much more. We were lucky enough to discuss the effects of the Bretton Woods Agreement, how countries like Japan and South Korea gain a competitive advantage through high productivity and low wages, and the negative impacts of free trade most economists don't think about. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Dr. Shaikh, thanks for joining us on Smart Talk. Uh, we're going to put a heavy load on you today. We're going to have you explain how free trade affected America in the last 30 years and how it affected the world. So this is a weighty topic. It's a, it's a favorite topic of, topic of mine. I think it has tremendous implications. The financialization of America is a direct result of it, I believe. But let's go back to the collapse of Bretton Woods. Uh, we will assume that things were in relative balance up until the time of Bretton Woods. We couldn't sustain the fact that we, we were going into a deficit position. We cut the dollar loose, and then what happened? Well, let me back up a little bit by saying that Bretton Woods was an experiment. It was an experiment trying to maintain uh, fixed exchange rates. But fixed exchange rates, have, exchange rates have a life of their own, which depend on underlying competitiveness of the countries involved uh, on the world market. And despite the tremendous power that the U.S. had after World War II, that experiment proved to be unsustainable because the underlying rates could not do the adjusting that they had to do. Now, I don't mean by that that the rates, if they've been flexible, would lead to balances. We know, for instance, that once the uh, rates were let go um, after Bretton Woods collapsed, the U.S. deficit actually got a lot worse and has continued to slide precisely under free trade and flexible exchange rates. So for me, this always raises the question, what's the theory behind these institutional arrangements? And why, for example, do we go to a floating exchange rate rather than managed exchange rates at that time? Because managing exchange rates requires you to have some idea of what the market rate is that's going to be sustainable. It's like any other price. You can manage it within limits, but you have to hold your reserves as the backup for that management. And we were not able to maintain the, the demand for gold, which rose shortly before the Bretton Woods collapse. There was a big reversion, we know, 
demand from other central banks and private owners, but especially other central banks. And the U.S. had to choose between maintaining this exchange rate or giving up a substantial portion of gold reserves. And uh, Nixon made the choice to to give up the exchange rate system, and every other country followed very shortly thereafter. We could have put minor tariffs back back in place to uh, to manage that transition, and in and in final in looking at it today, that probably wouldn't have been a bad way to go. Your your comments on that, rather than let it float free and let free trade become freer. I would, I, I would argue with you we could have stepped into that process and, and, and managed trade balances more effectively for everybody if we, we managed it to use tariffs, especially where we would be competing against lower wage areas. Yes, that's a, a very important point, that if you accept that competition has a lot to do with low wages or at least lower costs across countries, then the question is, can you manage the effects of international competition, when, especially when new players are coming up, which is very clear with Japan and later South Korea, but also Germany and the recovery. Can you manage away their competitive advantage in order to maintain ours? I think it's possible for some period of time, but of course this is a management that they have something to say about too. And for me, I think it is possible the U.S. with its enormous post-war power could have sustained the, the, the Bretton Woods system for some time longer, but it was crying out for realignment. What would we do about South Korea in the horizon, and Japan in their recovery, and Germany also, by the way, in Europe, and then later China? Could we have maintained our uh, advantage against them, given that they had lower costs and were uh, recovering rapidly? I don't think so, actually. So. Uh, I think the big mistake was thinking that free trade, a big mistake by economists, by the way. I was in graduate school at the time, and I remember everybody saying the trouble with the world system is that it's fixed exchange rates. That's a kind of Keynesian thing. And once you get to flexible exchange rates, everything will be fine. And it was absolutely false because the underlying theory was false. Okay, well, let's go back. Let's jump way uh, back in time uh, to the development of some of the key players like the United States, uh, Germany, and, and Japan. I think it's true to say all of these countries developed to their industrial, true industrial potential without practicing free trade. And if that's true, then why all of a sudden would the United States have decided that free trade is the way to go? Well, it's an interesting question, and let me just preface it by saying that uh, uh, the argument in favor of free trade, when the U.S. was itself coming up, was put forward by the dominant countries at that time, especially England. And uh, this wonderful, lovely little book called by Professor Hajun Chang at uh, Cambridge University documents how the countries that were developing, which of course includes us at that point, were absolutely clear that free trade was uh, something that would benefit countries like the, uh, England, like the UK, but would not benefit the US at that time because instead protections and tariffs and industrial policy to develop uh, local industry were the dominant thing. 
Chang quotes Ulysses S. Grant, President, yeah, saying, uh, we will, uh, England is favoring free trade because they have all the competitive advantage. After a couple of hundred years, when we have the competitive advantage, we will favor free trade also. Uh, so when we switched, or at least switched away from fixed exchange rates, which was something set up for a pretty short period of time, the general reading in the economics profession was that free trade would make uh, everybody better off. Now think about that. Why? Why would that? Why would be the, be that the uh, the case? I mean, classic free trade with Ricardo is essentially talking about primitive commodities with the very little technological uh, underpinning and talking about a situation where capital doesn't migrate and such an austere formulation to become the, uh, the cornerstone of global policy uh, is simply unworkable when, when technology is the, is the key to, to, to success. How could American policy planners uh, want to throw away their competitive advantage by, in effect, re-equipping former enemies, Japan and Germany, with the latest in equipment, allowing them access to our markets, and actually thinking that we can maintain enough of a lead so that we can keep our own people employed, when that, that situation has never, ever occurred in history. Well, I agree with you, uh, and I think the, the point you raise is very important, that economic theory bears quite a lot of responsibility for the standard economic theory. Uh, as I said, in graduate school, when I was taking courses on trade, I was told repeatedly that the collapse of Bretton Woods was a wonderful thing because the most efficient allocation of resources on a global scale takes place if all markets are left to do their thing. This was an uh, uh, extension of Ricardo's argument. My problem is that I do think markets are very powerful, but they don't necessarily produce the results that orthodox theory claims, for instance. It's not true, Ricardo's argument is not true that free trade will lead to balanced trade. Now, as soon as you say that, that free trade does not lead to balanced trade, then you raise the question you just raised. In that case, sh what should we do about persistent imbalance? Well, the implication is it leads to uh, a balanced economic equity. And, uh, and that can come in, in a number of different ways. I mean, the implication is that no one is worse off here. Yes, that is the standard theoretical claim, but I think it's utterly false. Uh, I do too. Uh, and, and the obvious reason is that nations don't trade, businesses do, and businesses trade yes. according to what cost advantage they have over their competitors everywhere in the world, within and between nations. So, if they have a cost advantage, they will export. If they have a cost disadvantage, others will import. So the trade that comes out is a result of sensible decisions made at the level of individual multitudes of individual uh, businesses. And governments can intervene in that, intervene, for instance, in manipulating the exchange rate. But people forget that when you manipulate an exchange rate, you have a double effect. On one hand, if you depreciate your currency, the export sector's goods go down in price on an international scale because you convert them into some international currency at a lower price. At the U.S. it's a little trickier because ours is the international currency, but anyway, you get some advantage from that if you can depreciate. 
but at the same time, imports become more expensive. And imports are a crucial factor in the cost of the goods that are produced or exporting, as well as goods that are not exporting. So this double effect uh, can be formalized to show that the effects are really quite small. You really do not determine the balance of trade any significant degree through exchange rate manipulation. Um, a classic example of this is that many third world countries have always had free trade in a uh, free, I'm sorry, uh, uh, exchange rates that they manipulated. But that has not made them into a balance of surplus countries. In fact, many of them suffer persistent balanced trade deficits. So you have to ask what's wrong with the underlying theory. Ricardo was wrong on his own ground. Smith, on the other hand, says just what I said. I'm not making anything up. I'm just taking it from the masters, so to speak. Smith said, trade is conducted by firms, not nations. And what determines whether they will export a good or import a good depends on whether it, they can sell abroad because they're competitive or whether they have to buy from abroad because they're not competitive. That is the correct principle, in my view, of what uh, how trade, free trade proceeds. And so then the problem becomes, if we misunderstand free trade, our policies give us results uh, that we don't want, even if the policies are thoughtful and well thought. And one can say a lot of policies are not thoughtful and well thought. Even so, if you misunderstand how the market works, then you will get consequences you don't expect. Well, how could they the whole economics profession, profession influence economic policy making so strongly with such a sparse formulation as Ricardo's uh, free trade formulation and, the, and along with Samuelson Stolper. I mean they wielded a, a policy that ended up in, in America by causing enormous unemployment, it, it, causing uh, budget deficits, asset inflation, and basically disempowering uh, the American working and middle class, all from essentially a misreading of this formulation. I think it's a misreading of how markets work in general, of which this was one important aspect. But if you look through textbooks of the time, and indeed even textbooks today, you get a, a litany of results that start from the notion that markets produce the best result. Now, if you believe that, and surely many economists do believe that, then it makes sense that you don't want Bretton Woods. What you do want is capital mobility and um, mobility of commodities and flexible exchange rates. And this was explicitly argued by all the leading economists uh, until it became clear that this was not working the way it was supposed to work. I myself started as a trade uh, theorist studies as a graduate student and uh, and development and it seemed to me that this was a remarkable uh, error in logic in Ricardo an error which Smith does not make and which later others like Roy Harrod at uh, Oxford point out uh, it's just logically uh, not valid now I can get into why um, that is the case why is it that free trade will not lead to the Ricardian outcome. And it's very interesting how Ricardo makes that argument, by the way. But free trade in, the, in its current sense has created a section of the country that's done very, very well, who basically has internationalized itself 
It's, uh, it's, it's dealt with financialization to take a part of the business of everybody in the world, and therefore is indifferent to the fact that you can arbitrage labor forces from one country that's been built up over, over hundreds of years with all kinds of structures and just sacrifice them and have a race to the bottom by moving around and still do very well in the financial sense, even though the basics of the country become eroded. How do you protect? Now, you don't protect it by opening up free trade. That's Ulysses Grant's point, right? You, if you uh, understand how the real process works, and I have to say politicians pretty much are better at this than economists, at least orthodox economists have been. Many economists are on record as having understood this better than the profession had. But the, the lure of Ricardo's argument and its elevation to uh, well, Paul Krugman himself calls a sacred tenet was extremely important in pushing for these policies. And of course, as you say, these policies benefit some companies. They benefit the companies who can go abroad and get cheaper labor and raw materials. They benefit the companies that can shed jobs at home so that they can set up operation elsewhere. Um, so we have to talk about the, the calculus of benefits and, and uh, losses. But let me just illustrate the key, almost uh, miraculous nature of Ricardo's argument. He says something very interesting and simple. He says, okay, let's suppose that Smith is right, that if you have a country with low costs, which he calls uh, Portugal, it's a little bit of a joke because he was a Portuguese uh, uh, person living in England, so he makes Portugal the more advanced country and England the less advanced country. And he says, okay, Portugal and England open trade. Portugal has lower costs. What's going to happen? Portugal is going to export goods to England. England is not going to be able to export goods to Portugal. So on balance, Portugal is going to have a big trade surplus. England is going to have a trade deficit. This is an argument that Smith finds perfectly sensible. Then he says, well, but if you have a trade surplus, then money is pouring into your country. And that means that Portugal's money supply is growing, and England's is shrinking because they have to pay for their deficit by sending money abroad. Then he goes into the quantity theory of money. He says, notice that in Portugal, with money pouring into the country, then surely prices must rise. As prices rise, they uh, little by little eliminate the competitive advantage of Portugal, in England, the opposite, money is flowing out, prices fall, and its competitive disadvantage gets eliminated. And Ricardo then says, well, where is this all going to stop? It can only stop, on his argument, at a point where trade is balanced, because then there will be no cross-border money flows. It will uh, mess up the, the competitive advantages, change them. So you end up saying, if you believe this, if you trust in the market and believe in free trade, then every country will end up being equally competitive in the sense that it will have uh, able to export and import equal values of goods. This has dominated economic theories in Ricardo's time, and Smith has fallen out of favor, but in fact trade does not work that way. There's no empirical justification for it. Uh, most studies of trade assume this to be the case. Let me give you a remarkable example. When NAFTA was being proposed, uh, the government 
commissioned, I believe, something like 23 studies. Of those 23 studies, 21, if I remember correctly, concluded that free trade would benefit both Mexico and the U.S. on the basis of models in which there was the Ricardian principle operating and there was full employment in each country. Because that's a standard part of the... Uh, so if you, if you assume that, then of course you get nothing but gains because all the trade does is get you a better mixture of goods than you have here. If you go back to old Adam Smith, he doesn't say this at all. You can get one country losing because it's not competitive on the world market. If it opens itself up before it's ready, it's like stepping into the ring with Mike Tyson. Yeah, maybe you'll get one or two punches, but you're going to be looking at sky very quickly. And that, I think, is something that perhaps people understood in, in government. I'm not privy to their thinking, but it certainly became clear that the benefits were towards for uh, industries that could compete abroad, benefits were for financial businesses that could spread abroad very rapidly, but the costs were for uh, businesses that were dependent on local production and, of course, for labor. Uh, I don't think politicians, um, despite what they say, were unaware of all of that. They have to respond to those who pay for them. And though we vote them in, they have a lot of powerful voices whispering in their ear. But the net effect, of course, uh, for that mistake is the United States finds it very difficult now to employ a significant amount of its population, create jobs that are technically substantial, except for a very narrow strata of the population, but can make enormous amounts of money with a monopoly on financialization. It's in effect, we have a military and financial monopoly which creates quite a bit of wealth. It's just there's no mechanism for distributing it back through the general population. So this is the effect of, of, of this on one hand. On the other hand, uh, free trade with a, a, a country that's technologically advanced over one that's much less technologically advanced can only result in disaster for the least technically advanced country. All experience and studies demonstrate that. And the only countries that have done really well in the face of free trade are the ones like China, Korea, Japan, who do not practice free trade and have been able to navigate institutionally and by policy uh, and to avoid the negatives of, of free trade. And yet, it, today, there's universal assent that this is the way to go. Now, I would argue that in America's heyday, we built up with tariffs and, and so forth, and in the grant formulation was, was operative, but you could argue, in effect, there were free trade within the borders of America, and the argument there would be, but within the borders of America, forgetting the South, technology, educational levels, and, and resource endowments were pretty similar, so that you wouldn't have one uh, area of the nation necessarily pushing the other around. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm making a, a strong case there. It's not quite true, but strong enough so that you could make a case for it, which leads me to conclude you could have free trade among equals, if it makes sense, but you can't have free trade among unequals. Your comments. I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head that if you want free trade among unequals, and unequals here is not just technology but wages. Keep in mind that countries like Japan and uh, South Korea and China 
uh, have taken advantage of free trade to get technology into their country, which is, after all, one of the benefits of free trade. But they have not moved their wages up to the wages in the West because they understand that that lower, if you have the productivity and your wages are much lower, then you have a massive competitive advantage. And they have been, uh, I think, more uh, consistent and more clear in their understanding of how trade works than uh, we have. Because we've forgotten what we started off doing, which is understanding that and telling that to others. And we forgot it ourselves, for whatever reason. How do you think, uh, looking at it from an American viewpoint, assuming that America is interested in all of its population, how would it work itself uh, uh, it, back into a situation where its productivity can be shared uh, amongst everyone, where it, in the last 30 years that's not the case. Or maybe if you look at it from strictly an empire point of view, it's doing quite well with the Boston, New York, Washington axis, and the rest of America can be treated as a, uh, a more sophisticated part of Latin America, and let's not worry about it. Your comments on that? Well. Uh it's certainly been heading that way since the Reagan revolution and Thatcher also in England, which is to focus on those who have the big gains from policies of all sorts, uh, including a tremendous drop in the interest rate from about 14% in the 1980s down to less than half a percent now. That's benefited anyone who can borrow and uh, businesses borrow also, but it's a tremendous incentive and spur to financialization, to the spread of financial businesses across the whole world, and the U.S. was there with its uh, military power, as you say, with its structural power, and also with the firms funding many of these things, uh, uh, initiatives abroad. So that is a response to the powerful aspects of society. In the process, inequality became uh, incredibly skewed. And this was celebrated, openly celebrated in that era and up to now, uh, but people are beginning to react to it. I, I wish I was more of an optimist to say that when people get mad, politicians will listen and fix things, but it, that doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, but I, I wish it would. I wish more people would take the message that uh, markets, in my opinion, are like nuclear reactors. You're going to get a lot of power under there, but they can also do some bad, very bad things. And uh, if you want to really talk about how markets operate, you should look at history. And you should have a theory that's developed from their actual operation, not some, some fantasy about an ideal uh, market, an ideal system, which is then just relaxed a bit to deal with reality. I think then we end up not only fooling the world, we fool ourselves also. Well, let me, let me argue as a, as a good uh, Julius Caesar in America. Uh, I'm looking at it. I control finance in the world. I pretty well can manage oil flows. Maybe I don't, I don't control all the oil, but I control enough marketing of oil to, to give myself reasonable power. I have the best military in the world. My corporations are worldwide, and I can look at that as part of my country, even though they're mobile. So I have 100 or 200 corporations under my wing. 
I have the finance under my wing, I have the military under my wing, and I'm global. I'm international. I don't think in terms of national borders. Why should I worry about any particular population and what particular population can pressure me? Well, I think, in fact, that is the attitude of too many politicians, but don't forget that most of us are on the other side of this equation. Uh, this is an extremely developed, rich country uh, with tremendous resources and tremendous skills and technology, but they're not only highly skewed, they're being applied in a way that uh, leaves too many people behind. It's not enough to say that you get a little bit richer. You should have some access to the wealth that has been generated, because it doesn't just come from businesses, and it doesn't just come from financial businesses. They are uh, getting the benefits of all the other work that's being done by everyone on the ground. And so we need to, can, so let me ask you the question then, uh, what's the politics of this? Because there's no economics without politics. What's the politics that can put pressure back on uh, changing the inequality of income? A lot of kinds of proposals have been advanced. Uh, uh, tax on rapid financial flows, a Tobin tax or something like that. Uh, let, me comment, let me comment on that. That's a good, uh, it's a good question. I'm, I'm, I'm facing this question. And to make it even more difficult for myself, I'm going to argue that automation is, is it advancing to the point where the old Luddite argument of there'll always be jobs from, from automation, I don't think is going to hold really anymore. So that in effect, I can create an autom autonomous world with a lot of bright and high, highly skilled people running productive apparatuses that can make everything possible and, and, and I can eliminate a tremendous amount of labor. So in effect, I'm a, a, autonomous and if I can't sell everything I make, well, I can sell everything I make for the time being, and I can lend people money for the time being to solve my realization problem, and somewhere down the road, this comes crashing in. So you're asking me, what would I do to, to stop this? Well, I would argue that all of this wealth being created, as you said, is, a, is coming from everybody one way or another. And so that you simply, in effect, you've created a commons, and you simply have to tax that that commons, and of course, as a, as a Georgist, I would, of course, tax, in general, all forms of monopoly, land, uh, uh, other f technology, where monopoly positions are held, and I would tax that and probably distribute it back to citizens as a citizen's dividend to, in effect, assure purchasing power, regardless of how it gets concentrated. And even the ordinary person who doesn't understand the mechanics of what created it can see that something unfair has happened. And if you tax the positions of monopoly, you're not going to demotivate smart or bright or hardworking people. They would may, might have less, but still plenty. And you would balance the system out and solve and, and, and cure the realization problem, not only in America, but probably everywhere in the world. Your comment. Well, I guess you're more of an optimist than me. I don't see that. Uh we have that power yet, and it is going to come. It's going to have to come from a massive series of demands which are percolating. I certainly see that, and I agree with you. Um, but I don't see it. Uh, I mean, take, take the issue, parallel issue of the environment. Yeah, so that's another constraint that's coming on us independently almost. Indeed, and, but the thing is that a lot of people don't want to hear that, or at least are persuaded 
that uh, it's not really the kind of massive problem that it is objectively. And the best scientists and the most articulate uh, filmmakers and writers are, are pointing this out, but there are, on the other side, people who resist it either because they don't like it or because they're convinced by people who say that this is not true. Well, so they're living in a short period of time, and as long as they can get their life before the deluge, they're okay. But I would tax those. I would tax those externalities as part of a monopoly tax, just to uh, close that door and avenue of escape. Because ultimately, this system will come apart environmentally, if nothing else. So, I mean, there will be an end to the way things are. It may be that the people themselves can't can't unstring it and figure out what's going to happen. But the environmental pressures, the ability of this planet not to absorb the excesses of output from technology will constrain the system at some point in a very bad way. We have to fight it now, but politics is a complicated and nasty game in which those people who have short-run benefits can well persuade everyone, or at least enough people, that the problem lies elsewhere. Uh, I think certainly from history we know that you can have a more equitable distribution of income. We know that you can have a regulation of industries, because that's how the U.S. came up in the first place. We know that you can have uh, universal health care, because almost every advanced country has done it. We know that we can have uh, a base on the standard living. So the problem is not an objective one. There are many tools in that kit, including taxation. The problem is that uh, the interest, conflict of interest, uh, is expressed in the political sphere also, and that is dominated right now by the short-run mentality and the uh, take as much as you can out of it for yourself mentality. And I would love to see that change. I certainly, my whole life have worked for that. But I do believe there is intelligent tax policies, which if employed as a Georgist, I would, I would think the monopoly taxes essentially would be... Uh, the strongest of the taxes. Let me just let me just add a word. Uh, sorry to, to break in. I think one difference is that I I believe that it's not so much an issue of monopoly, but an issue of how competition works. And if we understand that individual businesses are driven by a profit motive, and that motive has to be pretty short term, not for all of them, but they have to pay attention to that. Then we're facing a problem that. Uh, what we're getting now is what markets do if they're allowed to go unconstrained. This is the nuclear reactor part of the problem. So if we're talking about that, inevitably, there's going to have to be some discussion of how to channel and shape uh, competition and markets. And that has to come back on the agenda because it's certainly on the agenda all over the world. Dr. Scheich, thank you for joining us on Smart Talk. We'll continue this again, talking about probably tax policy down the road. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.